All right, Alexander, let's talk about what is going on in India. India is making news, but you know, the interesting part about what's going on in India is that uh, India is, is on the receiving end of, of this news. This is not something that they've asked for. It's, it's come to them. So you have this row with, uh, with Canada and, uh, and with Trudeau. And uh, now you have the sanctions on diamonds that uh, I imagine the EU is going to announce fairly soon in their, I think it's their 12th sanctions package. Yeah. So, you, you know, it's, it's really interesting to watch all of this go down because, uh, once again, India hasn't really started any controversy. But all of a sudden, they're embroiled in two. Um, I don't want to say the diamond issue is a, is a controversy, but it's a problem that's coming to them. If they didn't Indeed. ask for it, it's been, it's been hoisted onto them by the European Union. Indeed. I'm going to say straight away what I think is, what I think is going on. The United States has made a big effort to win over India and to make friends with India. This goes all the way back to George W. Bush and uh, the time, you know, the time when he, became, he was president at uh, the start of the century. But it has taken an extra, big extra dimension under Biden, because, of course, the Biden administration has been trying to enlist India as, in effect, a kind of de facto ally against China. And they've invited, they had Modi round to uh, Washington a few months ago. I think it was back in June. He was given an enormous reception there. They pulled out all the stops to have him, um, you know, well-received. He, he was in the White House. I believe he visited Congress as well. Anyway, they've courted India as a counterweight to, towards, against China. And they've also looked to India to obstruct the development of the BRICS because India is known to have a difficult relationship, a complicated relationship with China. And I think that they were quite happy, or at least back in June, they were quite happy in the US about the way things, the way things appeared to be going, or at least they, they thought they were going. And by the way, there was a big article in the Financial Times, which I think gave the game away. It talked about India moving slowly into the US orbit. You see, you know, we're talking about India, the most populous country in the world, a rising great power, but they were seeing India as a country that they could pull into the American orbit in other words, make some kind of a satellite. And, of course, there were all those reports just before the BRICS summit meeting about how uh, Modi wasn't going to attend the BRICS summit meeting. And it now looks clearly as if this was, these were signals that the West was sending to Modi, that they didn't want him to go to the BRICS summit meeting, and that they wanted him to slow down the whole process of what was happening there. Well, Modi did go to the BRICS summit, and the... At the BRICS summit, he had a good meeting with Xi Jinping. He went along with all the proposals. In fact, he played a central role in developing the proposals for BRICS expansion and for the setting up of the BRICS uh, financial and global system that we're starting to see evolve. And then, of course, he hosted the G20. 
And to the intense anger of the West, he again did what he has consistently done up to this point. Instead of accepting Western talking points over Ukraine, he actually resisted it. He didn't invite Zelensky to the G20. And when the G20 statement appeared, it was neutral. It was generally neutral on the conflict in Ukraine. So what happens, what's been happening, is that the West has firstly, I think, started to turn increasingly threatening. So at the G20 meeting itself, Modi had apparently... Firstly, this very difficult meeting with Trudeau. Well, we've discussed this already. But I think that Trudeau raised this issue of this um, Sikh who was assassinated in Canada. But I think he did it in a way that was intended to convey a warning to Modi and which I think Modi himself saw as a threat. And we know that Modi pushed back very angrily. So this meeting didn't go very well. But what we've now since learned, and we know this from an article in the Financial Times, which, by the way, is entitled The West's Modi Problem. What then happened is that the Western powers, all the Western leaders, apparently ganged up against Modi and also brought up all this issue of the Sikh militant in Canada and this the problems between India and Canada. In other words, they backed Trudeau. And it looks to me as if this was a concerted attempt to impose, to, to pressure Modi, which of course would have made him even more angry. And then after the G20, we had Trudeau go to the Canadian Parliament, raising a big issue over the Sikh militant. We've had lots of articles now appearing in the Western media. There's a new one, by the way, um, in today's Telegraph, which is about, um, you know, India is, you know, drifting away from the West. It's turning out not to be the democracy we all thought it was. There's talk about Modi's authoritarian streak all of those things. And now we've had the sanctions on the diamonds. Now, we did a program about this, or rather we discussed this over the course of one of our recent programs about the fact that the this um, sanctions on the Russian diamond trade isn't going to affect the Russian economy in any meaningful way. It is going to obliterate uh, Antwerp as a diamond trading centre. But, and it's also going to anger India, where most diamonds today are cut and, a lot of them are cut and polished. Most of them are cut and polished. And what has been, what I hadn't realised, is that the place where most of these diamonds in India are cut and polished is the town in India, in Gujarat, where, which... Apparently, Modi, more than any other, considers home. It is his own domestic political base. And the, this, these sanctions, when you look at it this way, apparently a lot of people in India are very upset and angry about this, about the, the diamonds, and it's going to affect the business, many people's business in India, in this particular town, over the diamonds. Again, it looks like an attempt to really get back at Modi in a way that will hurt 
people who are politically and electorally and maybe socially close to him. So it's there's a big Western push against Modi and against India. And it's clearly connected to what happened at these two big summit meetings, the BRIC summit in Johannesburg and the G20 summit in Delhi. That's my analysis. And I'm sure that's right. Right. So they're going after India. How badly is this going to uh, the backfire on the collective West? Well, it is going to backfire. It is going to backfire. It is going to backfire catastrophically, to be absolutely clear. There is no more pro-Western leader or, or party in India than Modi's party. I mean, there is no... Every Indian political party is fundamentally patriotic about India. You only have to spend time with Indian people to know the enormous pride they feel in their country and their deep connection with their own country. Now, some Indians lean more to the West. Some Indians lean more to good relations with Russia. Every Indian, even though those that want to lean more to the West, no Indian wants to end this long, deep, friendly, historic relationship with Russia. Even pro-Western Indians don't. What you're going to do is you're going to incense them. You're going to make them say to themselves, well, this West that we wanted to make our friend isn't really a friend. It's a bully. And that's, that's the feeling that's going to start to gain traction in India itself. Modi, I should add, is you know, a very popular leader. He has a lot of support in India himself. There's not to say that there aren't a lot of people who are very critical of him in India. He has many detractors there. But attacking him over these particular issues, because he has acted in a way that is fully consistent with Indian traditions and India's own deeply held philosophy of non-alignment, that is not going to go down well in India at all. It is going to lose the West friends there. Do you think there's any chance of, uh, of some sort of regime change or, or something being stirred up in India from various NGOs or from the collective West governments? They're going or to is try- Modi fairly secure in his position? I think, one, I think Modi's very secure in his position. And by the way, I should say that he runs an extremely tough and very savvy political machine. Taking it on would be extremely difficult. But you cannot carry out the kind of regime change operation in India that you can in some other places. India is huge. I mean, it's the most populous country in the world. It is enormously complex. It is very, very sophisticated. There simply isn't enough money, even in the United States, to buy enough people in India to make the kind of change, to make the kind of um, regime change operation succeed there that you can achieve in other in other places. And Indian people are far too proud. Indian political system is far too sophisticated. India's security services are far too well organized. The diplomatic service, as we've discussed many times, is amongst the best in the world. Any attempt to meddle in Indian affairs in that kind of way, all that it's going to do is going to discredit any Indian politician who appears to be 
connected with these sort of moves and isolated, isolate them and marginalise them. And it is going to unite the critical mass of Indian opinion, political opinion, against the United States. They're very proud of their country, which, of course, fought hard to achieve its independence. Never forget this. There's a long story about India gaining independence from Britain. They're not going to subordinate it to any other country, and certainly not to the United States. Why are they going forward with this? That's the, the, the US, the EU. Why, why are they pushing uh, India? I mean, because, because they don't know any better. I mean, this is, this is what they do now. I mean, you know, this is the trouble. I mean, once upon a time, you know, in JFK's day, I mean, John Kennedy had extremely good relations with Nehru, the Prime Minister of India, who, of course, was the architect of... India's non-aligned policies. He had outstanding um, um, amb ambassador in India at the time. I forget his name, but he's one of the big names. In those days, the United States understood, had the feel for the sentiments in a country like India. And they understood also that India is too big and too complex to manipulate in the kind of way that in the kind of way that the United States has manipulated other countries. But today they've lost that skill. They, they, they're much less powerful than they were in JFK's day, certainly far less powerful relative to India than they were in JFK's day. But they've become even more aggressive and even more bullying because that is all they do. <laughs> that is the only playbook they have so you know when they run into obstacles when they find that you know modi is not quite the subservient ally stroke you know satellite that they imagined him to be their first instinct is to come up and say to themselves well, what are the pressure points we can exert against him let's stir up some trouble with the Sikhs let's uh, impose sanctions on the diamonds and let's also have all sorts of hit pieces appearing about him in the media in the West one thing it's going to also do by the way is going to annoy and anger an awful lot of people in the Indian diaspora who um, live in Western countries who are also deeply proud of their country, as I should know, living in London, where, of course, the Indian diaspora is very large. Yeah, you know, the uh, one final thought, the US, uh, they've, they've given up uh, on, on, on diplomacy because it's, they don't have a system in place anymore. No, no. You know they've they've seeded all of that of that entire um, uh, process to the think tanks and the NGOs. That is exactly true. And, and now their diplomats, yeah, now their diplomats are just kind of appointed business people or or donors or, or something like that. You know they, they they just don't have a system in place more. It's it's almost like a football club. 
you know, why, why is the English league, you know, so good? Why is, why is the, the Spanish league so good? Because they have a system from, they, they get the kids when they're very young, they have the academies and, and they bring them up through the ranks and eventually they're, they'll end up playing for Liverpool or Manchester or Chelsea, something like that. But I mean, the, the U.S. doesn't have that anymore. Well, it doesn't. It, it, it doesn't have it, doesn't it have a in a functioning way. I mean, it, the, the U.S. has plenty of institutions that educate people who eventually end up in the State Department, and who, IR studies, as I know from for a fact, are, are a big thing in the United States. Except, of course, they are terrible. I mean, I, I, I've actually worked closely with somebody who was fi- fighting her way through an IR degree, and of course, it is. Absolute neocon thinking. It's not about diplomacy at all. I mean, international relations, as it's taught, is not about diplomacy. It's all about indoctrinating you in the, you know, the value systems, as Tony Blinken calls them, that are part of the handbook that you find in NGOs and in the State Department as well. I mean, the, 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 the barrier between the NGOs and the State Department no longer exists to all intents and purposes. They're all part of the same ecosystem. So that's, that's the problem. They don't do diplomacy anymore. One person did diplomacy. I mean, American diplomacy basically collapsed uh, during the Bill Clinton era. I mean, with Madeleine Albright and people of that kind. And it, it's basically stopped since then. No president since Bill Clinton has done any serious diplomacy. Except one. <laughs> one president did believe in diplomacy. He wasn't trained in it. He had no background in it. But he actually does believe that doing deals with people and meeting them halfway and negotiating with them and trying to get on with them and to understand them is the way forward. And that, of course, was Donald Trump. But, of course, he, we have to cast into the outer darkness his behaving in that kind of way. It's more like Neville Chamberlain. <laughs> apparently than it is about conducting the business of the United States properly and effectively and successfully around the world. How dare he, uh, he engaged diplomacy with North Korea, right? You know, Absolutely. how dare he? Absolutely. So Bolton had to make sure that, uh, that he sabotaged that whole thing. Absolutely. Exactly. Okay, we'll leave it there. TheDuran.Locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, Rockfin, and X. And go to the Duran shop, 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.